This episode of Weed and Grub is brought to you by La Vida Verde. La Vida Verde is a health and wellness what edible. What are you saying? Wettable. Health and wellness edible brand. Wettables. A wettable. You heard it here first. I love that. La Vida Verde is a wettable. <laughs> That's brilliant. They're aimed at conscious consumers made with organically sourced ingredients. Every La Vida Verde product has a low glycemic index, so they're awesome for people who are diabetic. I care so much about what I put in my body, and I only want to put good things in it. Yeah, be nice to your body. Be nice to your body. Be nice to yourself. La Vida Verde, Wettables, be nice to your body. <laughs> They're good. Yeah. They're really great. Their super cookies are the most delicious coconut cashew bites. They've got flavors like lemon pie, raspberry. What do you have? Uh, I love the salted caramel. Mm-hmm. Perfect about a half hour before Lord of the Rings, because you know how I've been going through all three movies Uh uh-huh yeah you know what i'm saying like i'm like frodo Frodo. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's awesome it's the perfect compliment to seeing those movies for the first time the chocolate brownie makes my mouth do a freaking happy dance that's what's up yeah Mm. it's the perfect thing to watch a movie chill out you can also for sleeping yeah Try their tinctures. The botanical infused tinctures are aromatic, uplifting, super relaxing. I love the restore tincture, which is infused with chamomile. Camp. I, I you always you finally said it right. I said it right. I've you always, always said, said chamomile. Yeah. I think that's a Canadian thing. Chamomile is chamomile. a Canadian thing. How do when you order tea, what do you say? Uh, cam. I'd like a cup of chamomile tea. Chamomile. Chamomile. I don't want to make fun of you for it because it seems cheap. I just have never heard it pronounced that way until I met you. What else is in here? Lavender and grapefruite. (laughs) (laughs) Chamomile, lavender, and grapefruit. It's delicious. And they're even coming out with a Levita Verde tincture for pets. In July. Mm -hmm. You hear that, Bobo? Yeah. Oh, yo, your cat screams. He's a screamer. He's, He's a fucking deaf screamer. Yeah. I'm so sorry to cuss, but I can't, I know that this is going to help him. I know La Vida Verde is going to help the boy chill. And it's going to help Archie the dog chill out too with all the fireworks happening That's in what's LA. Up. So yeah, follow La Vida Verde on Instagram at LaVitaVerde420 and go to LaVitaVerde.com to check out all of their amazing products. All their wettables. All their wettables. La Vida Verde, the best medicine starts with the food you eat. Hello and welcome to Weed and Grub. There's usually three. There's so much noise happening right now. Like, let's just try to record your sneezing. The dog is drinking. The dog is barking. There's a helicopter overhead. There's a drone underneath that helicopter. Archie's clicking around. Mm -hmm. Click around, click around. I click around. That's my song. Man, oh man. I usually have one more. It'll come at the end of this, probably. It's so funny that you, because I just finished editing... Uh, our interview with Alia, and mm-hmm. you sneeze at the end of that. I do. Yeah, oh, it's so like that's the perfect the third? intro. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> the very last. Oh, oh my god. god. <laughs> oh my god. You know what it is? It's solstice. It is solstice. Yeah. Everyone's like awake and alive. It's the longest day of the year. Everyone's feeling themselves. I'm so ready to get out into the sunshine and enjoy the the last part of this day. Yeah. 
Yeah. And everyone's screaming at the top of their lungs. Everyone's like, I feel alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we're all here. Yeah. Well, hold on. I did forget to leave your back door closed. So maybe we can get a possum and a raccoon and a squirrel and a hummingbird. Yeah. Up in the mix as well. A couple rats. Absolutely. Why not? I love, I always wanted a pet rat. I thought a pet rat on my shoulder and a tiny like two foot snake wrapped around my hand. I always thought that would be, that would make me cool at prom. I, you would have been cool at prom. I had a friend, Frank Nolan had a rat. Oh my God, Bobo, a pet rat when I was a teenager. And he used to care. His name was uh, Ratty, I think. And he carried him around on his shoulder. And Ratty liked putting his head inside Frank's mouth because they love the way your breath smells. Oh. And that I thought was very cool. And then my sister had two snakes that I kind of like co-opted. Um, and one of them was a little one that I used to wrap around my wrist. Yes. And his name was Armadillo. Yes. And my sister brought those snakes uh, home by stitching them into her skirt. What? She transported them home. <laughs> what do you mean? From, like, oh, because like she, she had to fly through to, customs? Yeah, she was flying home to Newfoundland from somewhere, and she'd found these two snakes, and she'd adopted them as pets, and so she brought them home by uh, concealing them in her her long skirts. That's crazy. Isn't that cool? You get a pat down by the TSA and customs, and it's like nothing here, and then you just see like the skirt slither and wave a little. She inspired me two years later. I was moving from Seattle to New York, and I had pet frogs, and they cost so much to ship. I couldn't afford to ship them, so I wore them in swim trunks that I wore wet under a long skirt through customs, and I flew with them to New York with frogs in my pockets. <laughs> oh my God, you're so cool. What a cool family. That's wow. That's what we were about. Well, this is a great segue into wanting to shout out Baking with Chickens. Well, how, how, welcome to Weed and Grub, everybody. Oh my God, this is a great transition into the show. Welcome to Weed and Grub, everybody. How's it going, Mike? I'm great, Mary Jane. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm yeah. feeling feisty, feeling frisky. Yeah, well, this is a podcast, if you're joining us for the first time, about comedy culture, cannabis cooking, calling shit out. Um, we got a Monday up, a hot Monday up today with a wonderful guest. Yeah. I was trying to think of a C word for smuggling snakes and frogs. Contraband. And contraband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah. all twisty around and backwards today, too. Fucking nuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, because you did the intro. Yeah. It's fine with me. Okay, good. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, what's the word where you're chill enough in who you are that you Confident. don't mind? Confident. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, it doesn't feel demasculating. Emasculating, which whatever it is mm-hmm. for the for the trade. I, moving on, who okay. gives a shit? I want to shout out Bing with chickens. Yes, because um, I was on the phone with my pops. Shout out Father's Day. What up, Steve? I know you listen to this. Happy Father's Day. Um, we'll get into his jams another time oh. because he sent me a bunch of pics from Laura Ann's jams. I'm all over the fucking map. God damn it! Focus it in, Glazer. Baking with chickens came over while I was on the phone with my dad. Christina. Yes. Yes. And she dropped off cookies. She sure did. Shout out, Christina. Thank you so much. So she was um, doing deliveries today, and I had forgotten that she said she was going to swing by, and all of a sudden, Archie let me know that there was danger, 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 someone at the door. There was a cookie delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Danger, danger, danger. Danger. Cookies are here. And um, yeah, so I got to say hi to Christina in person from, uh, you know, safely masked distance away. But she dropped off some cookies that she had made for baking. Do you have it pulled up there? I do have it pulled yeah, up right here. Yeah, will you here. say what it is? So she raised so far $3,585 for Bakers Against Racism, which is a bake sale and pie auction where all the proceeds go to places like Black Lives Matter, uh, Campaign Zero, bunch of great places and she's raised over 3500 bucks and we got some of the cookies and we're gonna eat them tonight i'm so excited oh my god i'm looking at the bakers against racism 
uh, Instagram page. Uh huh. Places like Baked by the River. Oh yeah. We there's so many cooks who listen to our pod. Yeah. If y'all want to be involved from a place that comes from your heart already, Bakers Against Racism looks incredible. This so it's is a bake tremendous. sale that you can kind of join anywhere you are in the country and just like hashtag it and then like deliver baked goods to your local places and donate the funds to this initiative. Exactly. That's Very what cool. it is. They have over 36,000 followers so far. Wow. This is amazing. Well, congratulations and thank you also yeah, so much. Yeah, thanks, Christina, for our home delivery of cookies. That was the coolest. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. eat some tonight. I know. While I watch Lord of the Rings, the final frontier. So not only is it Solstice and Father's Day and a day where we got cookies delivered, but you're going to see the third and final installment of Lord in the Rings, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings tonight. Lord of the Rings I'm tonight. loving it so much. Mm-hmm. It's such a good movie. I love the questions you're bringing up. <laughs> you're like, why is everyone so mean to Gollum? And why are <laughs> Pippin and Mary like not sent home? All of these questions. It's great. Absolutely. I don't really like Sam either. You don't like Samwise Gamgee? I don't What's think so. What's wrong with you? Nope. He's, he's the heart. He, he's, but he's, the, he's a prejudiced heart. He's he's so angry that he's not the leader. He wishes he was no, Frodo so bad. No, he doesn't. Yes, That's he what makes does. him great. No, you're so wrong. He is he's he's anti Gollum because he's very protective of Mr. Frodo, but he doesn't want to be Mr. Frodo. You don't at think all. he wants any of the shine for himself? No. How come the ring hasn't affected him at all? Also. Because he's not wearing it. It's only the bearer of the ring who's who's affected by it. It's only when you're when you're holding it and when okay. you have it on your person. Can I also say Peter Jackson Jack, Peter Jackson? Mm-hmm loves Elijah's face. Those big blues? Those oh, big baby those blues? fucking close-ups of those blues? Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't even know if he's acting as much as I'm just like impressing upon him whatever I'm feeling through those blue eyes because they are, he's a gorgeous guy. He sure is. Those bl- blue eyes like reflect everything perfectly around him. And also while we're talking about the wonderful cast of that movie, Ian Holm, who plays Bilbo Baggins, just passed away a few no days shit. ago. Yes, and he had a long and storied career from Chariots of Fire all the way up through the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit, and he was an incredible actor, and I read a very funny tweet from, uh, I think it was Rob Delaney, who was like, I'm offering up my body as a vessel for Ian Holm to come back and tell everyone who only shouts at him as The Hobbit to go fuck themselves, because he was so much more, but he was truly an amazing actor, and so it'll be really cool to toast him tonight when we're watching. Yeah, I have a whole plan. Also, did you notice I'm growing my hair out into curls in solidarity with Frodo? It is very luxurious. You've got some luxurious locks happening. I got Hobbit hair right now. I would call it like some some like CW hair, maybe. It's like like a teen drama. Like Riverdale hair. That's a big compliment that makes me uncomfortable. They're big, thick curls. They're you know some locks. Thank you. Do you ever see like when people are like, I spotted Harry Styles from behind, and it's literally he's like so recognizable because of just how his hair is. Oh. I feel like you're growing out a signature look too. Maybe you should like leave it, see what happens. I'm down with that for now. Are you embarrassed right now? I am embarrassed oh, right wow. now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think it looks great. Maybe Thank you should you. post a picture. Um. No. Um, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. My whole plan tonight is I'm going to uh, dive into those cookies that mm-hmm. Christine dropped off. And yes. then I'm also going to crack open some La Vida Verde. Um, I'm that tincture, yo, I am, I, I could just like drink a bottle a day. And so that one to one. Right. Yes. It's fucking perfect. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the dropper has perfect measurements on it. So I know exactly what I'm doing every single time. Mm-hmm. La Vida Verde, yo. Mm. Can I also say uh, my friend Lucy tweeted at us to uh, resolve the chamomile chamomile situation, oh. and it's chamomile, 
in the UK and in Canada, where I'm from. That is the proper pronunciation. What's Lucy's background that I'm supposed to believe her? Lucy's English. All right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy Wildblood, actually. Isn't that the most fabulous name? Jesus, yeah. You'll meet her someday. She's wonderful. Okay. Wonderful person. Well, then in that case. She was like, it's chamomile. Case closed. But also, you know, say chamomile if you're, uh, if you're feeling that. Can I tell you the thing I've been thinking about getting recently? I've yes. been thinking about buying a gavel for everyday use. Okay. Because that was such a gavel moment just now where I'm like, well, what? who is she? What does she do? And you're like, she's English. And I'm like, boom, case closed. <laughs> Maybe I should have the gavel. Yeah, we should get matching gavels. We should both have gavels. I just also realized that was a weird non sequitur about the chamomile, chamomile that was referring to the La Vida Verde tincture, which is made with chamomile, chamomile yeah. or chamomile. Yeah. Sorry, I just had to follow that thought all the way through to the end otherwise i would have felt unresolved and absolutely kinda hinky worms don't eat halfway through the apple and call it quits hmm. know what i mean you call me a worm <laughs> <laughs> this is the worst <laughs> intro we've ever done i think it might be the best it's the most us <laughs> it's for the sure. most us yeah it's a little scatty daddy ding dong but it's fun it's solstice it's, it's, it's like a if anyone ever day. comes and plays backgammon with us in your backyard we're drinking wine it's like you're gonna get 12 conversations at one time and they're all going to make sense and we can come back to any of them at any moment and be right back where that one left off that's how we work we have layers yeah we contain multitudes yeah is it a good time to get to our guest i want to finish my thought about gavels oh okay i'm so sorry i just was like i'll have a gavel and then i ended it and i was like (laughs) let's move on dung dung That's it. Carry on. That's it. No, (laughs) you can't tell me to carry on like you're the gavel holder and the judge. And now your hands are clasped across your chest like a judge who's like waiting to hear like, I'll allow it. Keep keep doing your bit. It's true. Yeah. I'm so sorry I interrupted your bit. It's okay. We got it. What about gavels? (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Damn it. I ruined it. I ruined the timing. <laughs> no, I think you're all right because th- this is the perfect time to get to our desk because our desk. Our desk. This is the perfect time to get to our desk, our t- guest. Yes. Um, this is the perfect time to get to our guest because it's it's a home-baked solstice Sunday. Yeah. And I can't think of a better top and bottom than um, raising a bunch of money for Black Lives Matter, followed by having an incredible interview today that I learned more about history that I never would have learned about uh-huh. had I not spoken to our guest today. Yeah, we spoke with Alia Volt, who wrote a book called Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. And Alia grew up with uh, a, a, inside a family that was providing San Francisco with pot brownies that alleviated pain for patients during the AIDS crisis. It was just a huge part of the culture in San Francisco. And she's grown up. She's all grown up. And now she's written this amazing book about it. So Alia hung out with us and gave us an education on what it was like to be in the scene at that time. It's so crazy to think about, just to think about like your family is making such an impact culturally, economically, and for just like the health and well-being of others. And all of it's illegal and all of it's underground, but it's some of the most important work that was happening at that time. Like, wow, wow, wow. What a fucking honor to be able to talk with her and learn about this time and her whole family. Fucking cool. It was fucking cool. It was a really cool conversation. And what a great day to release it. I think this timing is really, it's really perfect. Yeah. So, you know, bake at home, do what you can, donate, and just, you know, we're all doing our best. Yeah. And if you want to pick up Alia's book, buy it from a local bookstore. And, you know, don't give your money to the corporations. That's what's up. Yeah. But buy it. 
buy it. Hell yeah. Yep. All right. Well, without further ado, here's our interview with Alia Volz. Um, what up, Mary Jane? How's it going, Mike? It's great. It's two o'clock. The sun is pouring through your window directly on my face. I feel like I'm on the sun right now. I just had to move my weed plant out of the way so we could record with our very special guest today. And I'm so excited because it's perfection to introduce Alia Volz, uh, author of Home Baked. Yeah. Hi, Alia. Hi. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> this is so cool. Would you mind just kind of, I mean, we Mary Jane set it up because she's such a pro, but would you mind digging in a little deeper into who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, so my name is Alia. My book is called Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. This is the story of my family's cannabis edibles business, which was the first to do high volume distribution in San Francisco in the 1970s. My folks were distributing more than 10,000 brownies a month uh, throughout the city. Very unusual business model that they came up with. And then when the AIDS crisis hit, and of course it hit San Francisco very hard, Sticky Fingers transitioned into the very dawn of medical marijuana. So the book kind of spans the evolution from party drug to panacea and from dealer to healer through the lens of this small and innovative family cannabis edibles business. It's an incredible book. And it also chronicles the relationship between your parents, which was highly unconventional uh, and very um, sort of theatrical in my estimation with, with a lot of uh, interesting ups and downs. My folks are dramatic. <laughs> They're dramatic and they are weird and uh, <laughs> no shortage of material in this family. So I think we, we, we need to hear about the operation first and foremost, because at its height, uh, Sticky Fingers was distributing, I think you say up to 10,000 brownies a month. Is that right? Mm -hmm, more than 10,000. Uh, the high point was about 2,800 brownies a week. Holy wow. shit. And you were, you were uh, like in infancy and toddlerhood during this time. That's correct. So... So my mom had this, she came up with this very innovative business model. Um, it evolved naturally, I would say, but she had a small mobile bakery, which uh, my mom doesn't cook, doesn't bake. She's kind of a nightmare in the kitchen, but <laughs> she likes she likes weed. And uh, so the magic brownies quickly supplanted all of the non-magical baked goods. And then what was innovative about it was that instead of dealing to passersby on the street, she catered exclusively to people who were on the job. So she went into businesses along a fixed route and cultivated a regular clientele that would expect her every week and buy in higher volume. And then they would distribute through their own social circles. And uh, it was my mom, my dad, and a close family friend, and each one had different routes throughout the city. And so in this way, the brownies really by 77, mid 77, the brownies were really irrigating all of San Francisco. It was something that everyone knew about, even though it was quite illegal. And um, I think it, it, the, 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 the way the distribution happened, the fact that they went from business to business, it kept the police from being able to attach them to an address. There was no fixed address 
to bus. There was no place that customers were coming to. So does that mean that your family was well-known and beloved in San Francisco at this time, or did nobody know who she was? And there was just this huge splash on the scene that filled a need that wasn't uh, being filled before. I would say, oh, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, it, it, it was definitely innovative in the sense that there was no kind of business that was delivering at that scale, right? So um, I don't know if they answered a need that was already there or if they scratched an itch people didn't know they had and created that high volume cannabis business model. Uh, I think it might have been more the latter. People hmm. knew who the individuals who were the, 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 the let me say each person on a sales route, they knew who their sales rep was, say. So um, but but what people didn't realize was that there were other brownie ladies and a brownie guy who were distributing in different neighborhoods. So if you were in the Noe Valley neighborhood and my dad came into your shop every week, you assumed the bakery was in Noe Valley. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And if you were in the Castro, you assumed it was in the Castro. In fact, it was in a completely different neighborhood. And so the lack of a fixed address, I think, had to do with their being able to skate under the radar. Um, and it also really helped them reach a wide audience. And you were born into this operation as it was sort of growing. Is that right? Yes, it was just reaching its height when I was born. So my mom, uh, as soon as her as soon as she recovered from the birth, and it was a very difficult birth, she went back out, out on her route, now taking me along first, like in a jerry carrier, and then in the stroller. And she would fit, she would stuff the stroller with brownies and hang her duffel bags of brownies off the back bars because they were heavy. And it was a, a convenient way to move them around. So uh, I was often with her and I have early flashes of memory. Of course, it's I was pretty young, but I have early flashes of memory, especially of the feeling of being part of that culture. It was a very warm and exuberant culture at the time. So my mom's biggest route was in the Castro. This is the height of gay liberation, the gay liberation movement. Harvey Milk rose to power during the arc of this story and then was assassinated. Um, the disco star Sylvester was becoming an international star. He was a regular customer Could we talk about him briefly? Because I know he's in the book. And also I was uh, doing a fun little deep dive on your IG and his name kept coming up there as well. Yeah, uh, Sylvester, he was a disco star. Uh, Gender fluid is what we how we might describe him today. But since he used he used the pronoun he, you know, I wouldn't want to modify that. But um, a really early expression of gender fluidity. His big hit was You Make Me Feel Mighty Real which was just a huge disco anthem, especially in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, Sylvester was big and black and beautiful and warm. Just this great uh, figure in the Castro. He was very beloved. And um, he lived in the neighborhood. And my mom, when I was a kid, I went, went many times to his house and he had this wonderful kind of boudoir environment, always a lot of people around, guys hanging out, and cool art and antiques. And so it was kind of a wonderland to me. I, I loved going there. Do you have very specific memories from that time? Is it all sort of a blur? Did you have to go back and reconstruct it when you were writing? 
Yes, uh, I certainly did. And that that was pretty wonderful. The book is heavily driven by interviews. So I interviewed dozens and dozens of people, hundreds of hours of interviews. And it's really through the, uh, the generosity of my interviewees and sharing their memories that I was able to recreate the era. And then also um, confirm and expand on the stories that I that I was told uh, through archival research. But it was a really exciting time to recreate. San Francisco in the 70s and 80s was frothy. It was very politically dynamic. It was turbulent. And all of these wonderful creative culture pockets were just exploding um, from radical genderqueer theater to the punk scene to cults and religious groups and uh, all kinds of lifestyle experimentation. And because of how the Sticky Fingers model worked, they really touched all of these different groups. And so writing through that lens gave me an opportunity to preserve stories from all these subcultures that are, as the remaining members of the subcultures are getting older and, and eventually passing on, the stories pass away with them. So it was really a, a special part of the research for me. Wow. So has Martin Scorsese optioned this yet <laughs> to make it into a movie or is he in talks or what's happening with this? Because it's <laughs> obvious that it should be. <laughs> it has been optioned by Bad Robot. So that's congratulations. Whoa, yeah. congratulations. That's so uh, uh, I was already scrolling through. I was like, wow, who's going to play your mom? Who's <laughs> going to play you besides you? Like, this is all fun to cast in my head. <laughs> it's my mom loves casting our series. <laughs> but um, things are it's still very much in the developmental phase. So we'll see what happens with that. Sure. Well, I look great in uh, crushed velvet. Oh. And uh, I, I <laughs> and a gold chain. So let me know. You're having dreams, starry dreams. <laughs> starry dreams. <laughs> do you do you remember at at what point you you sort of became aware of your life not being like other kids, or was it always just sort of it always felt safe and happy? I mean, you write about it, you know, as from the perspective of someone who seemingly just had a really close relationship and you felt very supported and happy and secure. But did you ever have a moment of of really sort of wondering how you were ever going to be a part of the quote unquote normal mm-hmm. world, the normies? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complex. I my my parents never hid their business uh, from me. They never tried to disguise the fact that what they were doing was illegal. And so I grew up with this understanding of our family as being an outlaw family, but also with this this understanding that what my parents were doing was not wrong. It was illegal, but not wrong. So with it, I grew up with a really clear moral compass, but it was different from what most people have. Um, and when I was when I was little, I mean, really, the, it, it was really an, a wonderful environment in so many ways. And I I feel privileged to have grown up surrounded by such creative, innovative people in all the arts and and all of that. Um, and I was always very supported and nourished and cared for at home. There was no neglect in the household. It was really a, a wonderful, warm environment. But I was solitary. I'm an only kid and I was mostly 
in a world of adults, very imaginative adults, sometimes very childish adults. Um, but there weren't a lot of kids around. And when I went to school and started trying to blend in with the straight world, it was very hard for me. Uh, mm. I didn't relate to, to other people my age. Mostly as a kid, I, I, I felt closer with adults than I did with people in my age group. And it the secrecy around it meant that I really couldn't share what I found exciting about our home life with others because once you start talking about the people who are coming around, pretty soon you're talking about why they're there, right? So in order to protect my my the, my parents' uh, freedom and their safety in our, our household, I had to really kind of lock things down. And that is one thing that, you know, the children of today's weed families no longer have to deal with, right? The secrecy around it. Um, and, it and, and you also have to keep in mind, like I, I grew up during the Reagan era drug war. So anti-drug messaging and anti-pot messaging was very prevalent. I mean, it was everywhere. The Just Say No campaign you had the D.A.R.E. program, bringing police officers into school at the fourth and fifth grade level and lecturing about uh, what to do if you encounter a dealer and who to report them to. And meanwhile, you know, we've got garbage bags of pot at home. I think that that's so fascinating to me because I, uh, it's clear that you had been given such a solid foundation and belief at home that that belief that you were not doing anything wrong never wavered because I think you know there are a few stories that I've heard about kids being convinced by their school program that their parents were doing something wrong mm -hmm. uh, but that wasn't the case for you no and it, it was especially the dichotomy was especially striking for me because by that period by the 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 time that dare came around this is 1987 I think I was about nine ten years old in that age range and this was also a really intense period in the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. And so I was also going with my mom sometimes on deliveries and being at home when her, her friends and customers would come over. I was also seeing how sick people were and how much edibles meant to them um, in helping with uh, the wasting syndrome, with uh, suppressing nausea and helping with appetite. Uh, pain, depression, anxiety, uh, you know, cannabis was not going to cure AIDS. And I think we all knew that a magic brownie wouldn't cure AIDS. But it, there was nothing that did. And, and it was during a time when the Reagan administration was really refusing to even admit that AIDS was an epidemic. Exactly. Reagan didn't give his first speech on the issue of AIDS until 1987, by which point more than 20,000 people had died of the disease, he he wouldn't even mention. He didn't even say the word until 1985 in public. Wow. So there was a, a willful ignorance and a and a an unwillingness to even discuss the issue on on the governmental side. And meanwhile, people who I grew up thinking of as surrogate aunties and uncles and people I really loved were dying and these terrible deaths that as a child I I could see. And, you know, you could the 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 illness became quite visible for many people. And um, so I knew that 
my mom's work was was good. I mean, I could see it helping people. It made them feel better. Did she start it because it made people feel better? Or did she start it because she had a great recipe and money was coming in? And then it, she realized that she was doing like important, important work as well. Mm-hmm. There was a transition. So my mom's business, Sticky Fingers Brownie, started in 1976. This is well before HIV AIDS. And at that time, it was a party drug. It was for stimulating creativity. It was for having fun. People would take it and go to the disco. People would paint. You know, it was Mix all it about... Mix it with poppers. Kind of, yeah, more of the drug culture side of, of cannabis. But then AIDS hit the com- a community that my mom had been catering to all of this time, the LGBTQ community in San Francisco, really, really hard. And I think her first friend died in 1982, um, First couple of friends died in 1982, and then it was just an avalanche. People were getting so sick, and it, it was terrible. It was really terrible. There wasn't an effective pharmaceutical response to the HIV-AIDS crisis until 1996. That's 15 years. I mean, think about coronavirus if, if we don't get a, a vaccine for 15 years. But um, but it, it was so much more... I mean, there are, there are clear comparisons with corona, but at that time... HIV AIDS had an 80% plus mortality rate. And there was just nothing to do. And this helped. It helped a little bit. And that mattered. I I love the story of of how your um, mother would consult the I Ching to Mm -hmm. uh, ask the universe how to stay safe and how to conduct business. Can you say a little bit more about that, about how she sort of believed in this ancient system to tell her how to do business? Sure. So my parents were both uh, very much into the hippie oracles, the tarot, the uh, the I Ching, astrology, especially the I Ching, which is a 4,000 plus year old Chinese oracle. Um, And they called they considered it the silent partner in their business they ran all of their major decisions past the oracle and so i mean this is a process of you ask you ask a question you throw some coins it leads you to a passage in a book Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of faith to place in something like that um i don't i don't know if it was the right move or the wrong move, uh, although the fact that they never did get busted might speak well for it. It seemingly worked out, yeah. I mean, it seems to have worked out. (laughs) But in the book, I wanted to make it feel uh, magical because it was magical to them. And I Mm. I wanted to respect that that was their belief system. It's not how I would choose to make important decisions in my life today, but it, it worked for them. Do you use a magic eight ball instead? Is that... <laughs> I suppose so. You know, I think I think with with the oracles, um, part of what happens is sometimes I think it 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 tells you what you already know or what you already suspect. And yeah. so there's a combination of uh, being street smart and wily and careful, and also using this hippie magic to help clarify your thoughts around around a decision. Agreed. <laughs> S- agreed so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I uh, was just reading through the chapter today when you're going through some memorabilia with your mother when you're at her house in the desert and a surprising Polaroid from your father fell out of a letter. Oh my goodness. And I just love it because it's, <laughs> can, we, can we say what it was? Sure, sure. Um, yes, the, well, in, in today, today in Awkward Things, you learn about your parents writing books about them. Um, yeah, I, I was, um, I found some love letters between my parents and I had been hoping to find something like this because my, my folks divorced when I was young and I was struggling to reconstruct the early days of their relationship. It was kind of hard for me to imagine them in that early stage when they're head over heels in love and everything. It feels like it's going to last forever. I, I knew them in a, a, a more difficult phase of their relationship. So um, I found these letters and thought like, oh, this is great. You know, this is going to help me understand their relationship. Sure enough, it did. Um, but I yeah. open one of the letters and out falls a Polaroid of my, it's, it's like a selfie. And he's standing in a mere buck ass naked with a gigantic boner. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I mean, I screamed, <laughs> I screamed and dropped it and, you know, ran yeah. out of the room and came back and screamed again. And the, the whole thing <laughs> came with a letter that is so raunchy. It's, it's 70s porn. It's like you, talking about his rod of power and her love juices. And these are my parents. Yeah. <laughs> I love how into it you really dive. Like you really explore that relationship between them. And it's 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 wonderful and um, and funny, which is such a lovely, you know, lighthearted part of, you know, the, right. the story. That well, parents just... are people, too, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I, I wanted to understand really how they felt about each other and once once you've got past the the raunchiness in one or two places the this series of letters which go back and forth between them i think there are 10 of them in total uh really gave a snapshot of the things that drew them together and it, it enabled me to see that my folks really were in love and having grown up at a time when they were having marital marital problems. It was a lot of fighting. I'd never seen that side of them. It was really moving in a weird way. It was also incredibly creepy and gross. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, are you still connected to any of the outlaw culture of cannabis in San Francisco or is it all kind of above ground and moving into this corporate realm now? I see it mostly moving in a corporate direction. My connection to it... Um, these days, of course, is, is through this book. And in researching this book, I, I did speak with several dealers and growers. And, um, but, you know, the world that I'm writing about in Home Baked is the world of small farmers, of, you know, underground illegal farms out in Humboldt and Mendocino County. These, these have largely been shut out of the Green Rush. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah most of the small farmers who who were part of this movement are not able to obtain lucrative licenses yeah the permitting and regulations make it hard for a small business operator to right. even get get started it's crazy the people who made the movement have sort of yeah been it's really out. a shame and um uh willits is a town that we lived in for a few years in the in the emerald triangle willits is really dying um garberville's dying these 
little towns really survived on cannabis culture for decades. And these were the people who kept, who kept, um, you know, California, uh, Canisseurs and 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 smokers and you know for recreational and medicinal these are these are people who risk their their freedom in order to keep California green and um, they they're not able to access that income anymore it's really a shame and uh, you know of course it is also a, a lot of people talk about this but um, uh, the communities that were most harmed by the drug war um, which are rural hippies and communities of color in urban areas. If, if you have, in a lot of places, if you have a drug-related conviction on your record, you can't get a cannabis license, yeah. uh, even though the laws around it have changed and it's no longer regarded as, as a, a dangerous drug in, in most areas. It's, it's really, uh, there's, I feel like there's really a lot of work to do to make cannabis uh, equitable in some way. Absolutely. I certainly hope that every CEO and venture capitalist gets a copy of your book and reads it and that, you know, yeah. when it becomes a film or a TV series that it hits home and the hearts of the, you know, wealthy white uh, hedge fund <laughs> set who don't really understand what they're standing on the backs of because right. it's, you know, and so I, I really one of my main reasons for writing this was I, I was seeing in the conversations leading up to the passing of of um, Prop 64 in California, which legalized adult recreational use in 2016, um, that HIV AIDS and the activism around that was pretty much being erased from the conversation. And having grown up at a time where HIV AIDS was being erased while it was happening, where you had a government that was unwilling to talk about it, mainstream America was unwilling to talk about it, it feels uh, it feels really bad to me that there's a further erasure from within the cannabis community because yeah. we would not have legal access to cannabis without AIDS activism. That's so interesting to learn. It, it's, simply, it's, it's simply true. I mean, the first medical marijuana legislation in the country is Prop 215, co-written by Dennis Perrone, um, who had recently lost his lover to AIDS. Um, and throughout the... 80s and much of the 90s, most cannabis activists were also AIDS activists. It was part of the ACT UP platform. It was the two movements were married around making sure that people who were suffering uh, the ravages of, of AIDS ha would have access to this drug that ameliorated some of the worst symptoms. And, and by the time Prop 215 passed in 1996, uh, 380,000 people had died of AIDS in America. Um, so it, it's really, it, it, was a, it was a very hard one, right? It's a very hard one, right? And I feel like younger generations, unless they're really digging into the history, aren't, aren't a, necessarily aware of, of how they got this right and how important it is to not only pre preserve and protect it, but to make sure again, that access to cannabis, the income that it generates, the livelihood, and the lifestyle uh, remains accessible to the people who carried the movement, those who survived. Damn. Did you drop your mic just now? I thought I heard it drop. Did you just drop, <laughs> drop it? Do you have a, a collection of all of the, the artwork 
looking at the the posters and the recipes and the photographs included in your book are so wonderful. Is there anywhere, a central location where you're going to have a, an exhibit of, of everything that you include in the book? Oh, wow. Um, I do have, I have more than a hundred of the brownie bags that were the original packaging. And oh, for your listeners who might awesome. not know about this, my folks were, are um, both visual artists. And so every week, one of the people in the Sticky Fingers Collective would design um, original product packaging, hand-drawn with pen and ink, which they would then trade brownies to a local printer to um, print off you know, hundreds and hundreds of these bags, each of which would carry a dozen. And it became an underground comic because the, the bags would always reflect something that was going on in the city um, culturally, astrologically, uh, politically, sometimes my parents' marital problems ended up on the bags. <laughs> and uh, so it was for me, it was really fun because I have this kind of subtextual um, archive where I could I could see I had this visual representation of what my parents were thinking about on a given week. And it was really kind of a cool tool. Um, we did have a plan with a local dispensary here in San Francisco, the Vapor Room to do an exhibit of the original bags. Um, I think we'll come back to it, you know, once such things can happen again. Of course, it was the misfortune of, of a misfortune of timing that uh, everything has been shut down, the tours canceled, the parties are canceled, all of that. But um, I trust that we'll get together again down the road. Heck yes. And in the in this era of everyone wanting to make t-shirts and pins and stickers on Etsy, I could just see a, a world in which, you know, you, oh. we can all get a Sticky Fingers brownies. I have, I have t-shirts. <laughs> I do. Oh, you do? I have t-shirts. Yes. Oh, awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's the, so my dad had made a t-shirt in 1977. That's uh, the sticky a sticky fingers logo and it's done from a, a drawing he did of my mom while she was pregnant of me with me so we're all in the picture and she's eating a brownie and he does a beautiful pen and ink rendition of that and that was a t-shirt that they ran off in 77 and sold to their customers and so i've reissued it and um yeah if people want that they can contact me um through i guess through my website elliabolts.com or on facebook or on instagram i'm I'm mostly just selling them to friends on Facebook and Instagram. It's it's low key. <laughs> just kind of like sticky fingers. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, that's where everyone can find you then. If you could just yeah, l- let us know all all the things before we let you go. And could you also include in your plugs like what your Instagram handle is? Could you also add what your bunny rabbit's name is oh, yeah. to the to the plugs? My bunny rabbit. I have I have Rye and Didion. Ooh, those are good names. I had a bunny rabbit named Sweet Baby Angel, so Aww. it was nice to see some other buns out in the world. <laughs> well, Didion, she's a, a French lop, and so her ears hang down by her face, and she's she's kind of, she has a lot of anxiety. Um, she needs an analyst. And I, she, just, <laughs> she looks like Joan Didion to me. She's got those big brown eyes, and she's very pouty and, um, and complicated. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can see her now. Yeah, right? (laughs) Just needs a cigarette. (laughs) And what is your Instagram handle? It's Alia Volts with three Zs. So A-L-I-A-V-O-L-Z-Z-Z. Website is aliavolts.com. Facebook, I'm I'm public, Alia Volts. Um, And I would love to encourage people to pick up a copy of Home Baked from your local independent bookstore. Um, uh, You know... uh, 
Bezos doesn't need your money, but the local indies really do. And you can also, the audiobook uh, has gotten a lot of great reviews, and that is also available through your local independent bookstore. So a lot of them are doing curbside pickup or they'll deliver to your home. Support the indies. Heck yeah. Absolutely. Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco is out now. Your release date was April 20th. I mean. 420. Uh, come and, on. And so how, how, what a wild time to have to sort of put everything on hold. But And also the perfect time to like curl up on a Sunday, mm-hmm. crack open a book, and put down your goddamn screen. Yeah. Take a tech break and read read this incredible book. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, it's a... I, obviously, if I had my druthers, we wouldn't have released during a pandemic, but it it is at its heart a book about how a community that forms during good times and fun times, how this community reshapes during an epidemic to face those challenges in the absence of an adequate governmental relax, um, response, right? So it has a, a resonance. I think there are things that we can learn um, from the the medical marijuana movement and the HIV AIDS movement, um, as well as, as well as, you know, a little bit of escapism. Yeah. And I think also just on that note, learning that, you know, despite an uncaring, seemingly uncaring, uh, government that the people will prevail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I found, uh, I would say a surprising, I was surprised amount of solace. And I, I wrote, I wrote about the Trump, I was writing about the Reagan years right after the Trump election. And I found it oddly soothing to look at another time in in American history that for the people who were disregarded and harmed by the Reagan administration, um, it looked like the end of the world. And for some people, it was the end of the world. But we have, as a culture and as a society, moved on to another phase. So we we will come through this, presumably. You know, there's, there's something to, there's some hope to glean from that, I think. Absolutely. And bless you, Mike. Thank you. (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I hope to um, meet you at at an event in the real world someday. But it's great to have you here today. Thank you. I would love that. Thank you so much. It's really nice talking with you. You too. And if anybody wants to get a hold of us, we are at Weed and Grub on Instagram and WG at WeedandGrub.com. If you want to send us any letters, thoughts, more thoughts pictures of rabbits pictures of rabbits Mm -hmm. um no dick pics uh, (laughs) but you can send whisk pics and uh thank you all for listening see you again next week leave us a five-star review and talk to you soon bye everyone bye bye